The second passage in the Gospel of Luke that we're considering in anticipation of the coming of our Savior and the celebration that happens at this time of year is from Luke chapter 1. As you can see your bulletin, this is the second, what I'm calling a song that happens in the um, incarnation narrative. You'll notice it's identified as a prophecy, but if you read it with me, I think you'll agree that this is not an impartial prophecy. In fact, this is the father, Zechariah, thinking about his son and the one that his son is looking forward to, and he is singing with genuine joy. This prophecy brings him hope. And so from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 67, we'll read through verse, verses, uh, the verses through 79. Give your attention to the word of God. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant, that, grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of God. May he bless it this morning as I proclaim it to you. This morning, if you are nine years old, I want to talk to you specifically and recount to you a story that happened to me when I was nine years old. At nine years of age, it was in the middle of the summer, it was 4th of July, and in the town next to the one in which I lived, there was a 4th of July holiday parade. Some of you have been to those. The candy is thrown, kids line the street waiting for their Tootsie Rolls, hoping they won't be smashed. In this parade, there was a clown, and I could see him coming. I remember him very clearly in my mind. Big red nose, oversized painted lips, orange hair, big floppy shoes. He was a large man, whether naturally or his costume, I don't know. I could see him walking on my side of the street, and I could see him coming close to me. Little did I know, little did he know, that earlier that week, I had watched an episode of Little House on the Prairie in which a clown does terrible things to a little girl. And as he got closer to me, I kept thinking to myself, here comes a clown, here comes a clown. And as he was maybe a few feet away, I ran from the side of the street behind the house in front of which we were sitting and hid under some bushes next to the garage. And my parents eventually came to find me and asked me what was going on, and I told them. Even if you're a little sympathetic to nine-year-olds, you can understand the fear that comes 
in a situation like this, many of our fears are very similar. We remember what has happened in the past, and that past makes us hesitant about the future. In today's passage, we have a second song from the Gospel of Luke. And Zechariah is telling us, and this is the thing that I want to keep you in mind, that, that I want you to keep in mind as you listen. What Zechariah tells us in this second song is that we as the people of God can sing like you serve God without fear. And he tells us how that is possible, and there are two things I want to explain to you about this serving without fear and the joy that it brings. If you're wondering what I'm hoping will be your response when this sermon is over, I'll just tell you up front, I want you, Lord willing, to have the same tone that Zechariah expresses in this passage, that you would be filled with the joy that leads to singing because you believe that it's actually possible for you to serve God without fear. That serving without fear should bring that kind of exuberant joy that Zechariah expresses in this passage. There are two things about this I want you to hear. The first is why we would expect that we would fear. And the second, what this song says about the removal of this fear. First, why is it expected that we would fear? And that comes really in verses 67 through 75. And to give you a very clear idea why I've said this passage is about you should sing like you can serve without fear. I have point you, I'm going to point you to the very center of this passage. If you look at the end of verse 74, we have what I take to be the hinge of this song. It's like what everything builds to. It's the peak of the song. Zacharias sings that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, read this, might serve him with out fear. If you read the rest of the words that come before that phrase in verse 74, Zechariah explains in very succinct language this prophecy and what it says about the history of God's people. In verse 68, it says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. What I want you to understand is that the reason why the Israelites fear is because they have a history, God's people have a history in which there is good reason to fear. When Zechariah says in verse 68, for he has visited and redeemed his people, I want you to hear that idea of visitation as full of Old Testament meaning. In the Old Testament, that description of God's arrival, that he is intervening in history in a way that's obvious and clear, rather poignant, sometimes that can refer to God coming in history in judgment. He visited judgment upon his people. But more often, when the Old Testament says that God visited his people, it is God coming to protect or to care for his people. Let me give you an example of that from the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. By the end of Genesis, you know that the people of Israel are in Egypt. Joseph is about to die. And the people with him 
have plenty of questions about what's going to happen when Joseph, who has served as their protector, the one who has brought them to this place of safety, the one who has given them food to eat, what's going to happen to them after he leaves? So in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, Joseph says, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up from this land. Joseph says your hope for the future is that God is going to come. It's going to be clear in history that he has arrived, and when he comes, he will come to care for you and protect you. If I can just expand on this in even greater ways than I did as Joseph. And in Exodus 4, verse 31, next chapter of the Bible, we read about God visiting his people, and we read about that over and over and over in Exodus. That's repeated multiple times in that book. In chapter 4, verse 31, we read, and when they, that is the Israelites in captivity, heard that God had visited the people of Israel, they bowed their heads and worshiped him. In fact, if you want to know what the book of Exodus is about, this is one way to describe it. The entire book of Exodus is about God visiting his people, coming to deliver them in a way that is obvious and clear to them that God is the one doing it. And these visitations, this deliverance from Egypt was just one example, the most poignant instance in the Old Testament of God saving his people. Zechariah now talks about that saving power of God repeatedly in this prophecy, this song of prophecy. Verse 71 says, so that we should be saved from our enemies. The end of verse 74 says, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. God's visitation coming to see his people, coming in power to deliver them, is at the very core of the song that Zechariah is singing as he thinks about his infant son, John. And as you listen to him sing, you might think to yourself, this half of the song is full of joy. Why in the world, pastor, would you say that this portion of the song is actually about deliverance from fear? Why fear? Why does that hymn section of the song say that we might serve him without fear? To understand that, you need to think about the history of the Old Testament people. It was not simply that the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Chaldeans, and at the time in which this was written, the Romans were in control of the people of Israel It was that God's people feared, not simply because they were under the control of a foreign power. That was not their primary problem. Rather, it was that the people of Israel, listen to this, were given by God into the hand of their enemies. That's the story of the Old Testament. It wasn't that the Assyrians were stronger than God and God passively sat by as the Assyrians invaded the land. It was that God opened the borders and used the Assyrians in order to discipline his people. He was bringing them through the fire of affliction. He was refining his people. Why? Because the primary problem 
in the Israelite nation was not the Egyptians, it was not the Assyrians, it was not the Babylonians, it was not now the Romans. To put it in the language of Ezekiel eleven nineteen and Ezekiel thirty six twenty six and Jeremiah thirty one thirty three, the primary problem the Israelites faced in the Old Testament was their cold, stony hearts that rebelled against God. That was their problem. That was the enemy that they were facing first of all. You see, if the enemies are not first of all out there, but they are in here in our own hearts, you can understand why we might be led to fear. Why they hinge this passage, his prophecy, is the hopefulness that at some point we might serve him without fear. Because if the problem is in here, friends, then you know, as the Israelites did, that that's going to be with us. It's not some problem way out there that if only the Assyrians or whatever is the Assyrian in your life is gone, that everything will be right. No, you're carrying around in you your primary enemies. And then you can look at your heart and your life, what you've said and done, the thoughts that have gone through your mind even this past week. And you can compare that with the greatness of God and His holiness and you are right to fear. Again, it's not difficult for me, and I hope it's not for you as well, to look back over your life and come to the conclusion that you've done quite a bit in that life to offend God. And it's not just what you've done and what you've said, but be honest with God. It's even the intention of your heart with, what you have, with, with which you have done those things. Be honest, you've wanted to do those things. It wasn't that they just slipped out and accidentally all of a sudden they were there and you're like, where did that come from? No, the unkind word that you've spoken, the thing that you've stolen, the coveting that exists, the lust that you battle is not a problem from the outside in. It is a problem with the outside, but it's primarily a problem with the inside. Those sins you sometimes cultivate, you like them, they appeal to you, you find comfort in them, you're hoping they will bring you peace. You can think of very clear instances in my own life when I have offended God and I knew it. I can remember committing sins, think before I committed them, I know this is wrong. Have you never thought that? To give you one very simple example, have you never been in a conversation with someone you love and you've said in your mind, I'm not going to say that? And then less than 30 seconds later, what comes out of your mouth? Exactly the thing you said you would not say because you knew what it was wrong and yet you just couldn't help yourself, could you? You just had to say it. I can remember lying awake at night literally in fear of God, just waiting for him to drop the other shoe because of what I had done. And it kept me from serving God with joy. If your life is lived primarily from fear, it is no surprise that there is very little joy. Instead of joy, there will be dread and a desire to hide far from God. 
And so when I read this passage, I can see why fear is reasonable. Because I see the effects of sin in my heart and my life, and I know that dynamic. So that if you have thought this morning that you have reason to fear, I would tell you, you are not crazy. Far from it. You're being realistic about who God is and who you are before him. You're accurate. You're right. It's expected that you would fear. Just as the Israelites would fear as they looked at their lives collectively and individually over time. There is a reason we fear. It is because we stand before a holy God. And yet somehow I told you that the hinge of this passage that we might serve God without fear that the hinge of this passage is in fact possible. That even though there are many reasons we might fear in our hearts, it is possible that we might actually serve him without fear. Instead, the fear would be replaced with genuine joy. And that genuine joy would come from a holiness and righteousness. How is that possible? How is it possible if we're honest with our hearts and we see what is there and we evaluate our lives, that we might at some point be able to sing with joy with Zechariah that we will serve him without fear. How is that possible? That's the second half of this song. It's the removal of that fear. In verse 76, Zechariah begins to tell us how that is possible. And he addresses it to his infant son, to the one that we will know as John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You might not realize this, but John the Baptist is rightly rightly considered the last of the Old Testament prophets. Why is he considered the last? Because John the Baptist is the final mouthpiece of God, designed and sent by God to draw our attention to the Messiah who is coming. He stands in the same line as Ezekiel himself, Jeremiah and Isaiah, all the minor prophets, all of them had one central purpose, and that was to point our minds and hearts and to pin our hope on the coming Messiah. And Zechariah recognizes that about his son. That he is a prophet of the Most High. If I can fill it out, he is the last prophet of the Most High who in the Old Testament's great story of redemption would point us to the coming Messiah. And Zechariah fills out what it means for John to be a prophet of the Most High. He says he will go before him like a servant crying out, The king is coming! The king is coming! The king is coming! He will tell people about the salvation that God intends for his people through the one who is coming and the forgiveness of the sins, genuine forgiveness of sins, the things that we have done to offend God. Zechariah says, I know, John, even though you're this tiny infant now, God is going to use you as a prophet to point people to the one who actually forgives those sins. And John explains why in the second section of this chapter 
because God is tender-hearted to his people. He has mercy on them. And like a sunrise, it gives light to a new day. Not what happened today in Michigan, but just imagine a sunrise that gives light to a new day. And the joy that that brings to your heart. Zechariah says, the one who is coming will shed his light on us as his people. It brings back that idea that is found in the first few verses of the Gospel of John. Where John says about the coming Messiah and he was light. He was the light of men. You see the message that Zechariah is singing about is not about himself. It's not, first of all, about John, his son. It is about the one that John is pointing to. It is a song to his son about that Messiah, the fullest expression of the grace of God. He is the embodiment of the light of God's favor shining in darkness. It is not about running from that mercy. No, Zechariah says, there is no reason to run in fear from the Messiah who is coming. Rather, in that light, there is no reason for fear. The Messiah is coming in that grace to shed his light of mercy to all who would see. And that, my friends, is what moves Zechariah to joy. To sing this prophecy that it is possible, as the New Testament says, that a perfect love could drive out fear. In fact, in Jesus' own life, one of the most common things he said to his disciples was, do not fear, for I am with you. And if I would capture the second half of that song in just a phrase, it would be that one later on from Jesus' life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I am here as an expression of the mercy of your God to you. Instead of having to run from him, You have me, and therefore you can come before him with joy. And that's the same thing I'm saying to you this morning. That's why I'm saying that you can sing in joy about serving your God without fear. Because it is not only the case that someday when you die, if you believe in Jesus, you will stand before the God of the universe who will say to you, you are covered in the blood of my son, enter into eternal life. That is true, praise the Lord. But it is also true here now in the spot in which you're sitting in this place that your service to God is acceptable to him because of the sanctifying work of Jesus. Do you believe that? I have to say on my own heart, the second of those two is much more difficult for me to believe than the first. There's never been a moment where I've doubted in my life, not to say people don't, I just haven't. I have believed since I was a small child that if I died, I would go to be with my Savior Jesus. I'm very thankful for that. That's a gift that the Lord has given But where in my own life I've struggled terribly at times is with the sense that in this place and time that the Lord accepts me, that he loves me, that he welcomes me into his presence. 
and that the service that I'm offering to him is acceptable to him because of the sanctifying work of Jesus. Think of how that would transform your parenting, the way that you do your work, the marriage that you're involved in. Think of the way that would affect your view of your own sin over time, that God is not holding that against you. He's not just waiting because of things that you've done to clobber you over the head with it. Instead, the eternal justifying grace of Jesus Christ is also a sanctifying grace that he is working really in you now, changing you from one degree of glory to another. And in the work that you offer to him now, your Lord delights in your service. I must rest absolutely, resolutely, Upon that truth, or my work will be perpetually filled with fear. I'm not suggesting if you know that you're living in rebellion of, uh, against God that it doesn't matter. I'm not suggesting that at all. If that's the case, repent, so that's not the case any longer. What I am suggesting, however, is that even on this side of glory, it is possible for our God to receive what we are offering to him sanctified by the work of Christ. So that even if we are imperfect, even if the work that we're doing is not all that it could be ultimately because we're finite and fallen, even now the Lord can accept that work and he can do amazing things through us. Do you know how many meetings I've had after which I go home and I think, I wonder if I should have said something differently, if I said too much, if I said too little, if I really know why I'm saying that, if I said the right thing at the wrong time or the wrong time, the wrong thing at the wrong time, all those doubts. Am I the only one who has that? And yet somehow, in a way that is glorious and beautiful, I know that Jesus is mediating for us. So that in what I do, even if it is far less than perfect, my work is presented before my Father in a way that is acceptable to Him, and He uses it for a glorious purpose. My Savior covers my sin and he covers your sin as well in his own blood. And he makes me and you as perfectly acceptable to his Father as Jesus himself is to his Father. And I have to tell you this morning, oh, how my heart sings for that truth. It's almost unbelievable. Last week, a friend asked me, to meet with him. He told me that something I'd worked on for a long time, for months, and had poured a lot of time and energy into hours and hours and even some tears. What he said to me is, he said, I think you did a terrible job. You made some horrible mistakes. You really messed it up. And it caused people great pain and sorrow what you did perhaps he is right i told him i'd think about it i think he's right in some ways i don't mean that flippantly but i think he is 
And about other things, I've come to the conclusion only the Lord knows. I don't, and he doesn't, but the Lord does. But even in those times where we don't know what we have done and how effective it is, and we can look back and we can say, I wish I would have done that differently or that would have been better. I do know as certainly as I stand before you that God is able to use us for good. Do you believe that? God is able to use you as you are for good. His power and his mercy are that great. And the Lord does that because of the mediating work of our Savior Jesus. So not this morning after difficult meetings through this week. It is possible to stand before you without fear. Instead of being overwhelmed by what ifs and should haves, and it's never going to be good, which is my natural disposition. Instead, to take to heart the hinge of this passage that it is not only possible that we might serve him without fear, but because of the second half of this song, because of the Messiah Jesus Christ, we do serve him without fear. And then instead of the fear that often is in our hearts, we can come to worship him and say, but not this morning. Not that fear this morning. No, no. Instead, confidence in his presence. Singing the song of Zechariah with him. I am singing for joy this morning. And Zechariah asks you, and I do too, the scriptures do, to join us in singing. Because the truth of the word of God is, we do serve him without fear. Praise the Lord for the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things that roll around in our minds as we think about our service to you. And if there are things that we do need to repent of, things that we are doing in rebellion against you, Lord, bring those things to our hearts. Bring us to a point of repentance. We do not want to live in opposition to you. But in those places in which the evil one uses memory of what we have done, those things that have been forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ, Lord, replace that fear and that dread with confidence and joy in the work of our Savior. That even as we are now, we are acceptable to you. And as much as we want to make that rooted and grounded upon how much we have grown and changed and how wonderful we are now, know the same ground of our acceptance to you in justification is also true in sanctification. And that is we are acceptable to you because Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. Lord, even in the places where we've done and said things that should not have been said, bring us to forgiveness, to a point of asking for forgiveness and repentance, but then also fill us with the confidence that our God is even greater than our sin and can use these things for good. 
Father, we are grateful for this, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.